Well, we're in a new series uh, a couple weeks ago, starting called Faithful, Fueling Your Faith in a World on Empty. Today's topic is, is personal. We're going to talk about you personally. Um, we're going to look at a story from the life of Jesus. And Jesus just always seemed to be pushing his disciples, putting on them in almost impossible situations, asking them to do things that were impossible. And the question is, why? Why would he do that? Starting off even in his ministry, he called his first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they were fishermen. And he came to them and said, hey, uh, we'll read that in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, follow me, and I will show you how to be, or to fish for people, or be fishers of people, or men. Uh, the funny thing, where they were fishermen, they weren't all that successful fishermen at times, and so Jesus is going to say, okay, I'm going to transfer your failure into <laughs> successful in this other area. And it's like Jesus is saying to him, okay, you're not so good at this, but with me by your side, I got this, you will be successful. And eventually that proved true. In fact, he later on, actually last night of his life, he's talking to disciples again. He's been pushing them for three plus years, and now he's his last chance to talk to them. And he says something that's really uh, intimidating is the only word I can think of, even to me and to us today. This is John chapter 14. I tell you the truth. I always thought that's funny. Does Jesus have to tell us he's telling the truth? <laughs> Would Jesus ever lie to us? But anyway, that's what the text says. I tell you the truth. Maybe just because they wouldn't believe it. It's hard for us to believe. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. And if I'm a disciple and I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, wait a minute, Jesus. You're, you've done all these amazing things, raised the dead. I'm going to be able to do those kind of things? But here's the part that always gets me and even greater works. So Jesus is telling them and telling us that you and I can do greater works than he himself did here on earth. Now he gives us a reason why. He says, because I am going to be with the Father and I'm going to empower you. So he, he kept pushing the disciples. And the story we're going to look at today, which is interesting because it's in all, only a miracle in all four Gospels. All four Gospel writers decided this was important enough to include and it's kind of an odd story. But one of the other gospel writers tells us that Jesus has been teaching all day. How many of you have been to an all-day seminar? Have you sat to people teaching? Come on, put your hands up. Yeah, all right. Sometimes they're pretty good, sometimes not so good, right? But they do give you coffee breaks and lunch and bathroom breaks and stuff. Now, these folks are out in the country. There's no food around. Uh, there's no facilities, I can't imagine. Now, they had the advantage of having the greatest speaker ever, right? You ever sit through some boring speakers I have? They had the greatest speaker ever, so he at least captivated their attention or kept their attention. But they're there all day long. And so, we'll pick up the story that evening. So, it's evening. The disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a remote place. We're out in the country. And it's already getting late i.e. what? Send the crowds away so they can get to the villages and buy food for themselves. And by the way, we would like some too, I'm sure, right? They're hungry too. And of course, it seems a logical request, right? And of course, Jesus says, sure, go ahead and do that. 
Now, again, Jesus is always pushing them, right? He's only got three years. Get these guys prepared. Jesus said what? That's not necessary. Oh, we don't need to send them away? No, because you are going to feed them. Now, I always try and put myself in the story. Okay, I'm a disciple, and Jesus said, thousands of people there. It's late in the day. There's no restaurants around. Uh, one of the gospel writers said they didn't, they said, well, we don't have enough money. It would take a lot of money too, wouldn't it? And so, I can just imagine, there goes Jesus again, <laughs> pushing us, trying to get us to do stuff, in this case, would seem impossible, right? All right, so we're going to hold the story there. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. We'll do a little bit of review. Um, Jesus, as we just read, told the disciples to follow him. His, 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 uh, his calling to them and to us is to follow me. All right? I like that term because follow implies activity, doesn't it? Not follow you, me, and just in your brain, or just believe in me in your brain, but follow me actively do something. But this is so hard, isn't it? Jesus was perfect. How do you follow somebody who is perfect? How do you do everything a perfect person does? And then he, he, he upped all these demands and, and the commandments were so impossible that what, what the church has done, and it seems natural, is we've dumbed it down. Okay. Jesus can't really expect us to do all that stuff. So here's what he really wants us to do. Just believe. Just believe that he was God and he, and he lived a perfect life and born of a virgin and he died and then raised from the dead and now he's in heaven. And if you just believe that, you get to go to heaven when you die too. <clears throat> now that's a lot easier, isn't it? In fact, that, you don't even have to change anything other than say something you believe. But the interesting thing with Jesus was often he said to people to follow him before they believed. Okay, you don't understand what I'm talking about. You don't understand me. You don't understand my mission. Just come follow me and watch. And you can do that with your friends and, and relatives that are, that, are, that are unbelievers. Just say, okay, you don't have to believe all this Jesus stuff. Just watch us, all right? And that's why the onus is on us, right? <laughs> that they see Jesus in us. <clears throat> and eventually they'll come to believe because we do things differently. We treat people differently. We do things other people might not do. So, wrongly, we've dumbed this down to just believe in our heads. That's not what Jesus ever intended. And we talked about relationship, relationship with God. Relationships are based on what? They're based on, or the currency of, is trust. If you can't trust me, if I can't trust you, we can't have a relationship. But the longer I know you and the longer you know me, it builds up trust. And so I have complete, absolute trust in my wife, for example, after, after 45 years. Trust implies honor. And we talked about if we trust God, we are honoring Him. If I trust my wife, I'm honoring her. So God is most honored when we trust Him, when we believe Him, when we do what He asks us to do, when we choose to forgive everyone, when we choose to serve people that or below us, whatever that implies. When we um, choose to, as we're going to talk about, uh, be involved in a ministry. When we choose to uh, do whatever God's Word says. And by doing that, by trusting or honoring God, by trusting Him, 
our faith grows. And we're trying to figure out how to grow our faith, right? Now, it's Mother's Day. And I think, in general, the person that most trustworthy in anybody's life is who? You trust more than anybody else. It's your mom, right? That's a little strange when you become a teenager because you stop trusting your parents, right? <laughs> you think they're stupid. Then you get older and you realize they were smart all along. But, um, yeah, you trust them because they've proven trustworthy, right? They've cared for you. I always think it's interesting. If you've got a piece of cake and you've got five, four pieces of cake and there's five people, who doesn't usually take a piece of cake? Except in my house. I don't like cake, so it doesn't matter. Uh, mom. Mom does, right? Because she sacrifices. And then we said there's a question we can ask. Every day when you get up, you can ask yourself this question. What, what would I do today? What would I do today if I was absolutely 100% convinced, confident that God is with me? Almighty God. What would I do? What would I attempt? What would I stop doing or change if I was absolutely confident that that was true? And so we're looking for things that develop or fuel our faith. So what does? That's a question on your outline. What happens? What do we need to do to fuel our faith, to grow our faith? And we use the word active because we have this wrong concept of faith that's not active. So it's active faith. And so we're trying to look at things that are kind of general things. God can use anything to grow our faith, but these are things that God uses probably with everybody at one time or another. And so the one we looked at last week I called application teaching. So it was interesting, in our small group on Monday, somebody said they, when they started going to church as an adult, they just thought they would go there to learn the Bible stories. Well, he found out, no. You get a Bible story and then he says, okay, this is how it applies to you. This is how it changes your life. This is what you need to change and do differently. So a good Bible teacher, a good devotional, or a good uh, book will say, okay, here's what God wants, and this is how you need to put it into practice, or to apply it. And so on your outline, when our active faith, not just believing our head, active faith intersects with God's faithfulness. Okay, God said this, I've done it, is he going to be faithful? That's when our faith grows, because God is always faithful. Now, I used the word nudge last week, all right? So we, God nudges us. We have this inner compulsion or feeling or uh, uh, <clears throat> conviction that, hey, I got to do this, or I got to change this, or I got to stop doing this, or I need to go here, or I need to go there, or I need to make this phone call, whatever it might be. We get these nudges, if you're a Jesus follower, uh, all the time. And the question is, what do you do with them? And we said faith is like a muscle. It's like a muscle. When you exercise it, it grows. When you don't exercise it, it diminishes. So you, the opposite is our faith can get smaller. But we're looking at ways to increase our faith, grow that faith muscle, if you will. Now, part of our problem, and I just have to admit this, especially in our culture, is we're just too comfortable. And we like being comfortable. Nothing wrong with being comfortable, right? And so... Often God's nudge is to make us uncomfortable, right? To do something I'm not comfortable doing or stop doing something I don't want to stop doing. And he, he nudges us, he pushes us to, to improve ourselves, to change, to improve ourselves. So as an extension of, of doing that, 
Today I want to talk about specific doing, I'm going to call personal ministry. Personal ministry. And that almost always calls you to go out of your comfort zone. Now some people love working with kids and they work with kids and that's great. I will be working with kids in Bible school. Guess what? That's out of my comfort zone. The smaller they are, the more uncomfortable I am uh, teaching them. Now, my own kids, I was fine, but, but other people's kids, yeah. So, all kinds of things. Teaching in Bible school. Um, how many people have been on a mission trip? All right. Were you comfortable to say, hey, this is going to be great, no problem, I can do this? No, that usually stretches you, doesn't it? It goes beyond your comfort zone. Just being away from home, sometimes sleeping on on uncomfortable beds or sleeping on the floor <laughs> or other things like that. It could be something out in the community. Um, we do Micah's Backpack and other ministries here. Uh, you might have volunteer in a non-religious uh, area. Uh, personal ministry, where God calls you or nudges you or pushes you to do something often that you may not feel... I'm going to use the word adequate for. You feel inadequate on your outline. So we have to push through that, right? God's pushing us, and so we've got to push through that inadequacy to say yes to God for the benefit, first and foremost, for the benefit of others, okay? Teaching in Bible school, whatever it might be, a mission trip, whatever. But we benefit too because it grows our faith. And this can be sometimes really emotional. When God has used you to touch somebody's life, especially when they come back and say, oh, thank you so much that you did that for me or helped me with that or just sat down and talked with me or walked with me through that, through that, that difficulty in my life. In fact, personally, I can't think of anything greater in life than on the backside of God calling me to do something, I did it. And God privileged me to actually use me to do that. You folks that do music up front, hopefully you feel that way. Some of them over there. Now, I want to bring this up before we go any farther. Do you know that all of us resist that? None of us, first time that nudge comes, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Next time the nudge comes, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. No, no. We all resist, don't we? You said we all like to be comfortable, and it takes us out of our comfort zone. We all resist. So don't feel like you're a lesser person than somebody else because you don't, because you do resist. Now, rather than seeing this as a lack of faith, uh, I think the best way to look at it is a test. God's test, test. Disciples, it was test, test. The interesting thing about these nudges is they don't go away, do they? They persist, persist. I mentioned a couple of people signed up to, to help with Bible school last week, and I'm thinking, I'm sure they heard that announcement before last Sunday, right? So what was going on for multiple weeks? God was nudging them. They couldn't stop thinking about it. And the other thing is, you and I never know what hangs in the balance. Because if God's nudging you, it's something of benefit to others and ourselves. And if we don't, what doesn't happen that God wants to happen? What's hanging in the balance? Or who is hanging in the balance? And we're really talking about service. God is calling us 
to serve other people. So I want to give you some backstory real quick on the story we started earlier. Um, and it's, I don't know if some of you like soap operas, but it's kind of like a soap opera. If you, you know, there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible. So we're picking up the beginning of chapter 14 of Matthew. Here's what's going on. Herod, who was a governor, and this isn't the Herod in Jesus' day, uh, birthday. This is his son, one of his sons. Um, he had, uh, had, uh, had arrested and imprisoned John. John. We're talking about John the Baptist, okay? As a favor to his wife, Herodias. Now, here's where it gets crazy. The Herodias is the former wife of Herod's brother, Philip. Are you following that? So she divorced Philip so she could marry his brother, Herod. Herod also divorced his wife so he could marry Herodias, okay? John had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry her. So he marries her, they divorce and marry each other, and, and John's a preacher, and he's out there saying, hey, Governor Herod, what you're doing is wrong. Now, as governor... You have a lot of power. You could just shut this guy up, right? But there was a problem. Herod wanted to kill him, but he was afraid of a riot because the people loved John. They believed John was a prophet. So you don't go around killing prophets. So one day, Herod's having a birthday party. And at this party, uh, reading the next uh, verse, Herodias' daughter probably young, teenager, possibly, young adult, performed a dance. Now, this wasn't a tap, tap dance. This wasn't a waltz. Uh, the best thing I can compare this to, it's more like, uh, I've never been to one, a strip club dance, okay? This was almost definitely a sensual dance. And there's just guys there, and they're probably half drunk, and she's doing this dance. And so he was pleased. She did a good job. So he promised with a vow to give her anything she wanted. Young girl, now, what do I want? Do I want a new car, a new house? What, you know, what do I want? So she goes to ask her mother. Not so good a mother on Mother's Day. I said. And her mother urged the girl and said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a train. What a bizarre request, right? So, what'd she do? Go back to Herod. <clears throat> Said, oh, my mom wants John the Baptist on a train. So the king regretted what he had said. But because of the vow he had made in front of his guest, I mean, he, he could do what he wanted, but it was peer pressure, right? Didn't want to look foolish. He issued the necessary order, so John was beheaded in a prison, head brought to the train, given to the girl, and took it to her mother. Okay. So, bizarre, bizarre. Text goes on. So later, John's disciples come and get his body so he can bury it. And then, what did they do? They went and told Jesus what had happened. Now, John was special to Jesus, right? He was a relative, um, their, their moms were related. Um, he started his ministry by John proclaiming he was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. 
uh, and he baptized Jesus. So at this point, what's Jesus going to do? He's, he's, he's grieving, right? He's grieving. A friend, colleague, whatever, relative, had just been cruelly executed, not just died. Now, I got to think about this. Well, Jesus was, could do anything he wanted. Why did he not stop this tragedy from happening? And so I put this on your outline. Sometimes God's lack of response, for a better word, doesn't make any sense. I think you all agree with me. All of us at some point, as Jesus followers, have been disappointed in God. We prayed for somebody that was sick and they didn't get well. We prayed for a, a job and we, we didn't get the job. We prayed for something else. We don't understand it. It, it, didn't, it doesn't seem to make sense, especially when somebody dies young or whatever it might be. So Jesus is grieving, right? And the text goes on. As soon as Jesus heard this news, he wants to you know, have time to grieve. So he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone, but the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Now, I've shown you pictures of the Sea of Galilee. You can see across it. <laughs> it's not that far, and especially if you're at the north end. So if Jesus gets in a boat here to go across there, you can pretty much walk around the northern end of the Sea of Galilee and get there at the same time he did, and that's exactly what these folks did. So Jesus is trying to get away. He's trying to grieve. People are following him. So he gets out of the boat. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped out from the, out from the boat. Now, what could he do? He could have said, disciples, get me away from here. I need to grieve. I need to have time for myself. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus, full of compassion, had compassion on them and healed their sick. So he was upset. He was physically, emotionally drained probably. If you're like me, you've been there, done that, right? And what do you do when somebody comes to you and you just feel drained? Well, if the need is great enough, uh, God's power allows us to, to do, go on beyond what we think emotionally strength we might, or physical strength we might have. And that's exactly what happens here with Jesus. And, and another writer, uh, gospel writer tells us that he, that he taught them all day long. Then we get to where we started this, this morning, Comes evening time and disciples, what? Ah, it's a remote. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so we can go get to the village and buy food for themselves and we can get some for ourselves. And Jesus says, what? Ah, you don't need to do that. You don't need to send them away because you guys are going to feed them. <laughs> you feed them. That's the next verse. <clears throat> you feed them. Now, was, was this actually even possible? logistically, financially. It was impossible. They couldn't do it. Either way. So why did Jesus ask them to do it? That was the question I would ask. Well, in John's account, he mentions Philip. He said he, meaning Jesus, was testing Philip. He was testing all of them. Why was it a test? Because he already knew what he was going to do. Has God ever asked you to do something that you were incapable of doing? Well, I shouldn't say has he. <laughs> when he has, what would you thought you were incapable of doing? What is he trying to teach us? 
What was he trying to teach them? Trust me. Trust me. Well, how? Well, we'll see how it plays out. One of the disciples come and said, well, all we really have is <laughs> this boy has a lunch. It's five loaves of bread and two fish. Seems insignificant feeding thousands of people, right? We kind of learn here the solution to big problems. You've got big problems. Our country has big problems. The world has big problems. Um, what's the solution to big problems? What, what did they do? What did, what did Jesus say? He said, bring it here to me. What do you got? Five loads of two fish? Bring it to me. Give me what you got. Right? Next verse. Bring it to me. We're all invited by Jesus to bring it to him. Big problems, little problems, world problems. Bring it to him. Why? Uh, on your outline, he wants us to participate. Isn't that amazing? He could do it without us, but he wants us to participate. First and foremost, to honor him and also to grow our faith. So whatever that problem is, hopefully you pray about it, right? But what do you pray about? I pray about different things at different times. Um, another way to ask that question is, what breaks your heart? I've been praying about abortion for the last 50 years. It breaks my heart. I most recently started reading, uh, praying each day for some people somewhere, a persecuted church. And it breaks my heart when people just, just because they're, sometimes women and children are just, are killed, literally killed, just because they won't forsake Jesus. It breaks my heart. One thing I have to say, I don't know, you ever get bored, I never get bored. But you want to let it lead an interesting life? Give what you got to Jesus and see what he does with it. He'll never be bored. So what's he do? Text goes on. He instructed the crowd, sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and two fish, looked up to heaven, gave thanks, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples who gave them to the crowd. Now, so what did the disciples do? They offered them a little bit of food they had. And then when Jesus said, distribute the food, they distributed the food, right? They did what? What they could. What they were capable of doing. So I put on your outline, they trusted that Jesus knew what he, was, what he was doing, what he was up to. And when, so when, when, when Jesus nudges you, do you trust him? Then he knows what he's doing. We have a term for this. We call it walk by faith. I like that term, walk. It's an active, active term. But sometimes we get this wrong. We think walking by faith is, hey, this is what I want. And so I'm going to pray for this. And so I'm going to go get it. That's walking by faith. No, 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 no. That's presumption. Walking by faith is when you get the nudge and you don't want to do it, you do it anyway. That's walking by faith. So I put on your outline, their active faith, right? Gave them what they had and passed out what he, he blessed. Intersected with God's faithfulness. He multiplied it over and over and over, didn't he? Isn't that amazing? And when you and I do that, God not just adds, he multiplies. 
And so the text goes on. They all ate as much as they wanted. Now, folks, we don't understand this. We all, most of the time, we eat all we want, right? Folks in that day only ate as much to stay alive. That's all they could afford. So this was a, this was a treat. And afterwards, disciples picked up even leftovers. Now, we could tell you a lot of stories, Dev and I, about our lives, where we've been nudged. I mentioned one earlier this morning. Well, it's probably been 25 years ago. We were nudged to start doing foster care. We started out doing foster care with, with damaged kids. Well, that was really tough. Basically impossible. And then with the last 20 plus years, we've been doing adult foster care, which is different, but also has its, has its difficulties. Of course, probably the most dramatic one was, <laughs> I was only a pastor a couple of years, and I felt God calling us to the mission field, foreign mission field, international mission field. And so uh, after four years or so of preparation, one day we're going to get on a plane and go to this country we've never been, and we don't know anybody there, and we don't know the language, and we're going to have to learn the language. <laughs> so I can do what I do here in English there. It might be good on a mission trip. It might be as simple, if that's simple, as volunteering for Bible school. So I put this summation on your outline. Do what you can do. And trust, trust God to do what only He can do. That's the walk that builds your faith. Do what you can do. And trust God to do what only He can do. This isn't an intellectual thing. This is a ministry thing. So what happened after this? This is also fascinating. We're almost finished. Immediately after this, if you're the disciples and think, hey, we're heroes now, right? We just fed all these people. We should, you know, bask in the glory. Uh, Jesus, again, it's pushing them, pushing them. He doesn't have much time. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted his disciples get back into the boat and cross the other side of the lake. And he sent the people home. So I want to fast forward to actually after the resurrection. Last thing we recorded that Jesus said. He's going to ascend into heaven. And just the beginning. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. Remember that promise you're going to do greater things than I ever did? Disciples never went much of any place. A few miles from their home. <laughs> they... they uh, most of them were uneducated. Um, talk about impossible. This was impossible. So personal ministry positions us to experience God's power in our weakness. We wouldn't resist those nudges if it was our strengths, would we? And to experience God's faithfulness in response. We all get nudged. And we not, none of us know what hangs in the balance. So again, do what you can do and trust God to do what only He can do. You will be changed and those around you will be changed. Let me finish with this. You'll be amazed at what we can do together. So next steps. Where is God nudging you to be involved in personal ministry? I don't know. Only you do. Are you resisting? Or how long have you been resisting? And really, why? Why? 
So why not get started? Let me pray with you. Father God, I thank you for the nudges. Sometimes make me uncomfortable. And I pray for these folks here. Especially pray for that nudge to enter your family. For the person that, for the first time maybe, understand how much you love them. You send your son to die for them. And you want to have a personal relationship with them. And you want inviting them into your family to spend eternity with you. That they would pursue that nudge and believe. Most of us are Jesus followers already. So the nudges are into personal ministry, getting involved, maybe here at church, maybe out in the community, some nonprofit, whatever it might be. I pray, God, we, we would trust you enough. That's what it boils down to. We say have enough faith, but it really is trust you enough to do that which we aren't comfortable doing. Maybe even have a weakness. God, thank you so much that you're faithful. You're always faithful. I pray that we would be brave enough to pursue the nudge for your glory, benefit of others, and for the growth of our faith. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.